folks, welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here. I want to give a quick shout out to a couple of our local business partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located on 20th and Woodland. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper normally. But right now, they're open for uh, lunch and supper seven days a week through takeout. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret. Uh, they've opened. Uh, they've reopened for socially distant concerts, but also their their stuff is also very much live on Facebook. The live stream is available at least twice a week. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right. So hey, um, I've got a friend who doesn't eat onions or garlic. Uh, I, I know. Yeah. Can you imagine? Really? So I, I'm not going to embarrass them. I'm not going to mention their name. But when I was sitting down to dinner one evening with an Italian family a few years ago, and I mentioned my friend who doesn't eat garlic or onions, one of them said. One of them, a guy named Mark, said, what, no onions, no garlic? What's the point in eating? And yeah, I kind of agree. <laughs> but, well, maybe these days, though, unless you grow your own onions or you know where they're coming from, you know, maybe you'd be wise not to eat onions. Because looking at the data, and this is probably going to get worse, the, the current outbreak of salmonella caused by onions has infected close to 900 people in 43 states, and that includes Iowa and also people in Canada. So there's, there have been at least 85 victims now are also in the hospital. And that's according, of course, to the Centers for Disease, Centers for Disease Control. So, um, you know, where are these toxic alliums coming from? Well, all the onions have been recalled from one farm. And I'm putting the word farm there in quotes. It's called Thompson International. It's in uh, Bakersfield, California. And on August 1st, the company published this statement. And I quote, uh, Thompson is recalling red, yellow, white, and sweet yellow onions shipped from May 1st, 2020 through the present. The onions are being recalled because they have the potential to be contaminated with salmonella. All right, so I have a couple problems with that statement. First of all, apparently it's not just a potential. And this is just a statement they released last week. So, so you know, it's also, again, May 1st. You know, they've known for two months, apparently. Well, maybe they didn't know right away, but this has been going on for... Uh, three months, actually, May, June, July. Anyway, so, you know, the question is, I guess, where are these onions being sold? And well, not surprisingly, they're not at your neighborhood farmer's market. They're not at your locally owned grocery store. If you shop at Walmart, Kroger, Fred Meyer, Publix, Giant Eagle, Food Lion, then you quite probably bought a tainted onion if you bought an onion. So here in Iowa, our, our, our biggest grocery store is Hy-Vee, and they, um, in a statement they released, they pulled all their onions from the shelf last weekend, August 1st. Um, but they now say that any onions purchased by customers since August 4 are from a supplier in Washington and not from Thompson International, FYI. So, but I'm not sure I would take a chance on that if I were you. You know, before our, you know, our, we, we grow onions. Kathy and I here at Birds and Bees Urban Farm grow onions. And before they came on strong, you know, we'd run out of onions in the winter. So we were purchasing a few from Gateway Market. And I did check with them. All their onions are not from, none of their onions are from Thompson. The problem is, it's not just the onions you've got to worry about. It's any processed food that contains those Thompson onions. And that includes chicken salad, macaroni salad, uh, fajita stir fry, pizza. It's a huge long list. How long? Well, Giant Eagle alone, that grocery chain, has recalled more than 50 products. <laughs> so, you know, of course, you know, one way around that risk is not to eat processed foods. And, you know, they're more expensive, they're less nutritious, and, yeah, I guess you're more likely to get infected with salmonella. So, you know, to, to get an idea of how prevalent salmonella is in the U.S., according to the CDC, every year salmonella causes about 1.35 million Americans to be sick, and 26,500 of those end up in hospitalizations, and we have 420 people die. Now, of course, food is the most common source for salmonella. Uh, and of course, it is the industrial food system that is by far most responsible for these cases. Now, you might remember, you know, years ago, the FDA uh, estimated that salmonella-tainted eggs, well, this is current information, they estimate that salmonella-tainted eggs sickened about 142,000 people in America every year. And in 2010, there was an outbreak of salmonella at a, at a huge egg confinement here in Iowa, DeCoster's place, that uh, it was the largest recall in history, half a billion eggs uh, contaminated with salmonella. You know, and, and the same can be said with onions and fruits and vegetables in general. 
Um, you know, here's what John Gibbons, he's a prophet uh, at um, Mass, the U University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Uh, he has, um, he's, he's focused on uh, food and science. He has to say this, uh, quote, for fruits and vegetables, salmonella contamination typically occurs due to poor agricultural practices, including the usage of improperly treated manure, contaminated irrigation water, food handlers who don't wash their hands. Okay, so again, given the long list of salmonella and other outbreaks caused by the industrial food system, you'd think there'd be greater interest on the part of policymakers to incentivize local food security. Well, let's talk about that. I want to welcome to the program Zachary Couture. Zachary, welcome to the show. Hey, Ed, how you doing? I'm good. So uh, Zachary is the land and production specialist at Lutheran Services in Iowa, and he knows a thing or two about growing food sustainably, locally, and ideally, presumably free of salmonella contamination. Uh, Zachary, welcome to the program. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, well, I mean, my own background uh, involves um, volunteering at LSI when we started the community garden program back in 2010 and just getting roped into farming um, basically because, you know, I did learn, I learned a lot about where my food came from and um, the more I started to learn about genetically modified crops um, and also some of the dangers of uh, some of the food that you buy, uh, just not knowing where it came from, I wanted to have a little bit more control over that personally. Right. Um, and then the farmers I started working with, the gardeners, um, you know, they came here as refugees and they have a long history of uh, agriculture providing for themselves on very small plots, growing large amounts of vegetables. And uh, I, was just, I was just pretty hooked. And where, where were most of the immigrant families you work with from? Oh, they're from all over. Um, so the community garden, they're, they're from basically any country you can think of that's uh, resettled refugees within the last 15 years. Um, and then we have a business development program as well uh, where people are starting um, farms where they can make a living off of. And most of those farmers are from Burundi, Rwanda, and Bhutan. And in the, uh, in the COVID-19 era, which has been going on for the better part of this year now, have you seen an uptick in the number of people interested in local food production? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we're getting requests through our new Facebook. Um, we haven't had any through Instagram yet, um, but social media is new to us this year. So check us out. Um, but then also at farmer's market, like just the other week I was there, um, meeting with farmers, um, and, uh, I had, uh, three people ask me, uh, to have a garden for next year. Wow. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, so, we just can't get enough land and we have so much, uh, desire to do this, especially now people don't have jobs. So, so let me ask um, you that. Is, is, people is, are seeing the bad conditions they're working with, and uh, a lot of people work in meatpacking plants right. and uh, jobs where, you know, they're not valued as um, people very much. So um, definitely having an uptick in people wanting to grow their own vegetables these days. And that's good, but let me ask you, in an urban context, and we're talking specifically about Des Moines, but this might be the case with a lot of cities, is there enough land in the urban urban environment to accommodate those who want to grow food? Well, I mean, I, I think there's enough land outside of the city if um, if there were enough uh, either private land owners who were willing to rent or uh, figure out a way to sell their land and not just make money uh, just for development price. Um, I, I think there does need to be a concerted effort um, on the part of everybody um, to to see the situation that it is with our food security and to be looking how we can uh, use land for regenerative agriculture to be feeding ourselves, um, you so know, Des and not just... You know, Des, Moines, um, Des, Moines is sound, Des Moines is surrounded by some pretty uh, prime farm ground. I mean, uh, it's, it's some of the best land in the world, and it's also under a lot of pressure from development. So are you able to find farmers or landowners who are willing to either lease or sell their land to uh, well, to new farmers? Well, this year we just opened a new site in Pleasant Hill. It was 12 acres. Um, there are two farmers on there currently running four acres each, and then the other portion we're just um, 
letting be fallow this year, and then we'll place another farmer there next year. Um, but in terms of the farmers coming through our business development program, there's not enough land, um, not enough people stepping up um, to to put aside land um, for this purpose. And I mean, I think there's a lot more that can be done also with you know land that the city owns. Like for instance, um, there's a plot that um, we've been renting, or one of the farmers has been renting over by Jasper Winery, which got rezoned yeah. um, from being FEMA protected, or not FEMA protected, but it was a flood zone. It got rezoned, and then now they're looking to have something be developed there instead of saying, hey, you know what, like this is a good benefit to the community. Right. Yeah. Um, and um, So that, that's that's an issue. How do, you, how do you convince policymakers at the city level, county level, state level, and of course federal level, how do you convince them that that uh, this kind of local food security is important and needs to be, you know, there needs to be some incentive or at least some accommodation. Again, in this example, you're not asking for a handout. You're just asking that they not rezone good farm ground for industrial purposes. How do you how do you convince them to do that? I, I'm not sure. Um, it doesn't seem like it's been uh, on the top of people's priority list either. Um, you know, we've been trying to build a grow tunnel um, out at our site at Valley Community Center as well. Um, and we can, but, um, you know, we have to put it up as a tent and then take it down after six months, and that's a lot of work. Um, so it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of prioritization of uh, food access and people growing their own food right now. So, I mean, that's I think that's up to people to put more pressure on their policymakers and to be choosing people who are prioritizing um, uh, agriculture like that yeah. in an urban setting so you, um, you, you, and, and you, looking at policies that can support that. You think maybe between COVID-19, the advancing concerns about climate change, and the most recent salmonella outbreak, again, one of many, you think those things might encourage policymakers to be more proactive and more supportive of identifying land that can be used for growing food? I hope so. I mean, uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of money uh, to be made doing that, um, which I think is a big motivator uh, for people um, where I think, you know, we need to be prioritizing other things um, than money. Um, to be able to have, you know, healthy communities and good food systems locally. Isn't that, um, isn't that un-American, Zachary, to talk about prioritizing anything but money? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm being sarcastic, I, of course. I, I, you know, I don't know if I want to touch that one exactly. <laughs> I, I think, you know, it's important. I think it's American to want to make your living, you know, doing something you love. There you um, go. And Perfect. I have a lot of people who uh, are doing, doing just that with uh, growing farms, but... You know, there's there's not land that people can buy and just make a living um, because the pieces of land that are available to buy um, are purchased by, you know, people who have a lot more money working lots of different types of jobs than, you know, just trying to make right. a living off the land. And so I, I would like to see a much simpler uh, outlook at, at how, um, you know, people can access land, but, but just based on a, a system of money, that's not going to happen well, Zachary, uh, currently. We've got to run to a break. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Um, thank you, Zachary. Uh, we've been talking with Zachary Couture. He's with the uh, Lutheran Services in Iowa, the uh, land and production specialist, doing a lot of good work on local food production. Again, thanks for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome, Ed. Uh, and I encourage everyone to come out to our farmer's market. Um, we have the Double Up Food Bucks program where if you're using Snapper, uh, Snap, you can double your money uh, in getting more vegetables. It's been a great program nice. for the community. So Good to know. All right. Hey, folks, when we come back from a short break, uh, Charles Goldman's going to join us. We're going to talk about the long, bumpy, and uh, only partially accomplished road to the restoration of ex-felons voting rights. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. 
at Hawk Restaurant. That's easy, because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. back to the Valentine. Yeah, we are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Thanks to some of our local business partners, including Ritual Cafe, Fair Trade Coffee, Fair Trade Tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. That's Ritual Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures great and small for over 30 years at Story County Veterinary Clinic. All right, later in the program, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the question of whether or not Donald Trump could, quote, win even if he loses. We'll also be talking about the hidden violence in a veggie diet. <laughs> but first, I want to welcome uh, Charles Goldman to the program as we take a look at um, felons' right to vote, That uh, the restoration of felons' rights to vote. That's, um, that's taken some leaps forward lately. Charles, welcome to the show. Yeah, how's it going, Ed? Good. So you've been tracking this. Um, big deal in Iowa. Iowa was the last state to allow felons to automatically had their voting rights restored. And that changed last week when Governor Reynolds, Republican Governor Reynolds, signed an executive order allowing most of the 60,000 felons, about 45,000, to automatically have their voting rights restored. That's correct. Although, even though Iowa keeps getting that uh, description, um, as we may talk about either in this segment or the one that follows about how Donald Trump may win even if he loses, um, you know, well, uh, using the issue of having had a felony conviction to remove your voting rights um, has been part and parcel of the Republican plan to steal elections nationally. Um, and I would argue that it's the worst situation is actually in Florida, no, where you're dealing with almost 1.6 million people. And we'll talk a little bit about how even though felons' rights there were supposedly restored by a referendum, in which 65% of Floridians voted to restore their rights. In point of fact, most of them will not get their rights back at all. And that was in 2018? Um, well, it was in 2018, um, the referendum to restore felony right. uh, felony voting rights in Florida uh, got more votes percentage-wise than uh, Governor DeSantis, you know, uh, slash uh, mini-me Trump. Um, mini-me mini Trump? To be elected, <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, but but uh, if you, do you remember DeSantis's commercial during that commercial? Mm -hmm. He ran a commercial in which his son was building a wall made out of blocks. Okay, and it was supposed to be Trump's wall. Yeah. Okay, so, that's, that's what our politics. And did it, did his son get Mexico to pay for those building blocks? <laughs> no. No. no, obviously right. we know that. So so what tell us about? I, I'm not familiar with Florida's restrictions on felons voting. Well, first of all, maybe do you want to do you want to sort of detail briefly, you know, what Governor Reynolds did? Sure, and I can get a little history on that. I mean, I I was pushing to allow felons to vote back in the mid '90s when I was a state lawmaker. It just seems so unfair to me. You can come out of prison, um, you've done your time, and you have a much easier time getting your gun rights back than your right to vote back. And part of it was I had a constituent who went through the process. And it was grueling and sometimes humiliating, but he was able to get his voting rights restored. But most most felons don't want to put up with all that crap, you know. And and why yeah. should they, why should they have to? We're talking about voting. A very simple, uh, n not a dangerous thing to do. <laughs> no reason you shouldn't be able to. You're you're expected to have a job when you get out of prison. You're expected to find a place to live and to live a decent life. Why should you not be able to vote? So uh, everything changed when Governor Vilsack, a Democrat, got elected in 1998 and signed an executive order saying, yeah, felons now will have their voting rights restored immediately, automatically. And then, of course, when Governor Branstead, uh, round two, got elected in 2010, he immediately cancel that executive order. And, and uh, so, it, you know, it was, it, was, it was very transparently partisan. 
Democrats felt that they had some advantage in having felons able to be able to vote. Republicans, in this case Terry Branstad, saw pretty clearly that most felons were going to vote um, Republican. So, you know, he, he canceled the executive order, which led to huge amounts of confusion, by the way. So now what, mm-hmm. what mystifies me, and maybe, maybe with your little crystal ball, Charles, you can help us figure this out. Governor Reynolds, also a Republican, restoring voters, uh, restoring felons' right to vote just before a very critical election. That is, a, that, is very, that is fascinating to me because I don't think the politics of this has changed much. And it's unusual. I mean, you, you almost never see pure policy where politicians do policy simply because they think it's the right thing to do. There's always a spin to it and a political angle to it, a partisan angle. Not always, but oftentimes. Maybe, maybe most often. So what, yeah, is, I, what I, is it this I don't time? Really, I don't really see that here because the, the way that um, other states have used the supposed restoration of felony um, voting rights, they essentially take it away by predicating it on making restitution or paying off your court fees. And that is not the case with this order. Um, and that's what the Republicans in the House, the, the Iowa House, wanted to do, which was to predicate the return of voting rights on paying your court fees and paying restitution. Otherwise, they did not consider your sentence complete. Right. And that's exactly what, they did, what they're doing down in Florida, which is, okay, you know, so, in Florida, they fund the uh, court system from court fees. Okay, so, and, so, you know, stick with me on yeah, Stick with me on Iowa for a minute. I want to make sure we understand what's yeah. going on here. So the Republican yeah, legislature, after the, I mean, I, you know, I, I got to got to credit the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, uh, they raised the profile of this issue in a, in a in a huge way. And again, part of the backstory is what Iowa's black population is what six percent of the overall population, maybe less. And yet, mm-hmm. Iowa, the percentage of blacks in Iowa's prisons is what close to thirty percent, twenty five, thirty percent. It's huge. It's huge. Right. It's way out of line with the population as, 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 as a whole. And, and so, you know, I can see why Black Lives Matter would find this as one of those things they want to work on. Um, but to me, it's just amazing how quickly things moved. I mean, the legislature was still in session or back in session after a, a COVID hiatus, and they addressed the issue. But as you said, they addressed it partially. And now Governor Reynolds has taken it even further. And I'm mystified by both. I mean, I, again, I understand they probably felt and feel some political pressure because the majority of Iowans, as, in, as, as, as with the majority of Americans, are supportive of what the Black Lives Matter movement wants to accomplish, by and large. Maybe not everything. Maybe not defunding the police departments. But by and large, Americans feel that there is racial bias and that needs to be addressed. And one element of that is the level of incarceration of black Americans and tied to that is the fact that when they get out of prison, they can't vote. So, you know, right, but, I mean, the question you ask is what 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 was her motivation? See, to me, right. I think that in, that in what you just said is the, is the point, which is that this became a very visible issue. She may well have aspirations that are greater than the governorship. Um, there are plenty of, you know, to use a term from the 50s, fellow travelers with, with, with Black Lives Matter in regards to this issue, because she could have, you know, put the executive order saying we're automatically going to, you know, restore your voting rights, but then put some sort of requirement for restitution, but she didn't. So, I mean, I think this is actually a, a, a good faith effort on her part. Um, and I would suspect that the political calculation is, is that some of the people who are going to get their vote restored will remember that. So do, you, um, so do you think that when you said she may have the political aspirations, you're thinking she might want to run for the U.S. Senate or maybe I would for— assume, I would assume that—and, okay. you know, she's also in very negative territory in terms of the apprehension of how she's handling the, the COVID issue here. Um, yes. And I, I think there's a lot of—there's a lot of suburban whites uh, in Iowa who feel the same way that the Black Lives Matter uh, movement does about yeah. felony— uh, you know, restoration. And, you know, so I, I think when you look at what was done here versus what has been done, for instance, again in a place like Florida, um, you know, you can you can see the cravenness of the Republicans in Florida because what they're doing down there is they are making restitution a requirement for you to get your vote back. The problem in Florida is 
that no one can figure out what the restitution is supposed to be in a huge number of these cases. And here you're dealing with 1.4 million people who are supposed to be getting their vote back. In Florida, Florida. 1.4 million. Right. And so, then, of wh- course, a huge proportion of those are going to be African-American or Hispanic. So why is it, uh, why is it, hard, to figure out what the, why is it hard to figure out what the restoration um, settlement is? Well, because it, many of the records in terms of these cases are on index cards buried in, in the courthouse somewhere. And there's no centralized system to record what these restitution amounts are. There's no centralized system for the court fees. So that just by the nature of bureaucracy, they can say, well, you're going to have to make restitution, and then it's going to be, and as has been the case, there's like 80,000 requests there for restoration of felony rights. Not a single one of them has been looked at yet. Okay. So and the... That's, the, you know, the, as I say, 1.4 million voters we're talking about. We're not talking about 40,000 people like in Iowa. Right. We're talking about 1.4 million voters. Wow. So, the, so the um, the the referendum that 65 percent of Floridians supported back in nine, in 20 sorry 2018, uh, that was restoration of voting rights with no reference to the need to pay off restitution. Correct. It was it was unfortunately vague on that issue because it talked about completion of sentence, and so of course. Uh, with the help of the Republican legislature there, they have interpreted completion of sentence to equal paying court fees and uh, what other restitution is required. Has there been a court case um, suing over yes. the lack of action? Yeah. Okay. What is what's, what's the status been. of that? Well, and actually a you know federal court already said that uh, this is an equivalent of a poll tax to use restitution as a criteria for voting. Um, and told them that they can't do this, but the problem is it's getting so close to the 2020 election that it's unlikely that a a huge proportion of these 1.4 million people will be voting. And let's Mm -hmm. not forget that Florida also pioneered the removal of the supposed felons from their voting rolls back in the uh, George W. Bush election. Right. Um, And, of course, as it turned out, the main felony you were guilty of in Florida at that time was voting while black. Because a huge number of these people who were removed from the computerized roles were not felons at all. Yeah. And this is just another tactic of, of voter suppression. So, um, no, I mean, I think in this case I would give Reynolds credit for, for really doing something that has validity as com- opposed to what goes on elsewhere, which is to use restitution and court fees as essentially a poll tax. So, you one, know, and, and, yeah. Well, one, one, one thing is, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe you noticed, maybe other people noticed that uh, Joni Ernst, Senator Joni Ernst, uh, after – after Reynolds took action to uh, restore voting rights, uh, one of the critics of that that uh, that that executive order was uh, the notorious uh, Congressman Steve King, uh, soon to be a former congressman. And Joni Ernst publicly and vocally stated her opposition to his position, stated her support for what Governor Reynolds did, and 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 so people know, you know, Kim Reynolds and and Joni Ernst go way back. Uh, they've they've been buddies for a long time. Uh, they were both county officials a long time ago. Actually, I first met them together when I was the ranking member of the House Local Government Committee. They came to, uh, they were interested in, uh, you know, a, a small little change in the code that would help them in their job. Uh, it was kind of a funny meeting, actually. They were sitting in the back of the room li- laughing, <laughs> giggling. <laughs> but anyway, right. but they're, they're friends. And so I, I wonder if part of Reynolds' initiative was in, in part to help Ernst, uh, you know, again, that's one that you know she 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 has she has her conservative credentials down. She's not going to lose any support among the Republican base, but this is maybe one way for her to speak up and say yes, I support this. Uh, I'm a good senator. Uh, I'm representing a constituency that you know you know maybe I'm not always identified with, but I care about people who have been denied the right to vote. So you know maybe it's maybe it's um. Maybe it's not just good policy decision on Reynolds' part, but it's also good politics on her part, and especially uh, in terms of its impact on Senator Ernst in her campaign against Teresa Green. Well, Senator, Senator Ernst is, is is definitely playing both sides of this here, which is that you know her campaign ads show her walking around with the police, right. you know, and and railing against the leftist, you know, the Democrats who are trying to you know take away the police and turn off nine one one. And so people are going to break into, you know, the grandma's house and rape her, which is, you know, the Trump ads. And here's an opportunity for Senator Ernst to appear to be more moderate. And and let's face it, the Republicans are getting killed in the suburbs nationally. Yes. Oh, and locally, and, too. 
and locally. And so they need to find something where they can ally themselves because one reason that they're getting hurt nationally is because the people in the suburbs understand the absolute, you know, incompetence of the Trump administration, you know, buoyed by the Republican senators for the most part in, you know, this fiasco of their response to the, to the pandemic. And they, you know, so they're looking for something where they can uh, approach suburbanites and say, you know, when they're not busy saying that, you know, black people and, and the leftists and the anarchists are there to destroy the suburbs, they're trying to find something where people who are socially more liberal who live in the suburbs, you know, might come to their side. And I think this was an issue that's not going to cost Ernst a lot of votes. It's not going to cost Reynolds a lot of votes. It is only 40,000 people if all of them were to get registered. Yeah. Um, so I agree. I mean, I, I think that there is some is, is there is some element of, of collusion, if we could use that word, <laughs> between <laughs> Senator Ernst and, and Governor Reynolds on it. Let's call it cooperation. <laughs> yeah, perhaps cooperation would be better, right? Yeah, I yeah. understand collusion. Collusion is not a crime. Right, right. <laughs> and neither is cooperation. Um, <laughs> no, it's not, cooperation is not either. Hey, i got to run to a short break. Uh, Charles, uh, stick around. When we come back, folks... Uh, Charles Goldman is going to stick with us, and uh, we're going to be talking about the many ways in which Donald Trump could, open quote, win re-election even if he loses. This is Ed Fallon, your host, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Findlay. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call I'd like to take a second to thank our nonprofit sponsors, Bold Iowa. Thanks to Bold Iowa, who've been fighting climate change and the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2015. Check out boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, where you can learn how to turn your yard into dinner. Go to birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, welcome back to the program again. Charles Goldman with us this afternoon. Uh, later in the program, Kathy Burns will join us, and we're going to be talking about the hidden violence in a veggie diet. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and my vegan guest is laughing at that. Okay. Hello, Charles. <laughs> I'll definitely have to hear that soon. Oh, you will. You will. All right. you, do you have recordings of broccoli screaming? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to I'll try to track that down. Maybe, there may be some screaming right now with a tree limb having been dropped on it by today's storm. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's got to be some, some, you know, little segments on TikTok of vegetable screaming. Yeah, there's, there's, lot, there's lots of, uh, there's lots of uh, plant and, and infrastructure carnage after today's pretty massive storm that rolled through here, rolled through central Iowa. Yeah, but Iowa. it's a whole surprise, yeah. Well, and one, one of the, one of the, uh, the, the sweetest little uh, uh, victim, not, not totally a victim yet, still alive, is a little baby bird that must have got knocked out of its nest, which I found on the sidewalk, which uh -huh. is... Um, so, Doctor Goldman, I might need to solicit your advice on how to how to um, how to take care of a little bird. You know, you know all about that, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Okay. <laughs> maybe you could put the cat put the cat in charge of the bird. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Why, why did I think of that? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, speaking of cats in charge of birds and chicken and foxes in charge of chicken coops and Donald Trump in charge of America, um, you know, here's a guy who. Um, who every poll shows is losing badly, and again, these are just polls. But they show him losing badly, and it's hard to see how Donald Trump could pull out a victory if these polls hold. And yet, when you look at all the various ways in which votes are being suppressed, um, election results are 
questionable voting machines are inaccurate or easily hacked. You look at all those different things and you think, yeah, maybe there's a bunch of ways in which Trump could win, even if he loses badly. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and that is what he has spent the last month and will do for the next three months setting up. I mean, what he is doing is saying that unless the result is a win for him, it is by definition rigged and fraudulent. And, you know, this, this issue with the mail-in ballots is a big part of that strategy. You know, which is claiming it's so easy to game. Um, he has some of his other, you know, uh, surrogates out there talking about counting votes after Election Day because in most states the ballot has to be received or in some states postmarked by Election Day, but it still should be counted. So what may happen is that people will be physically voting mostly people who physically vote are going to be Republicans. And the Democrats who were making this big you know, turnout project to um, get people to mail their ballots in. So you may have a situation on you know, November 3rd evening or late or early morning the next day where Trump claims victory based on the in-person voting, even though two-thirds of the ballots still aren't counted. Well, does that mean? Um, is, does that kind of uh, suggest to Democrats that maybe they should not be encouraging people to vote no, by mail? No, but I mean, it suggests I know... to Democrats that they 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 need to be ruthless, and you know they've accepted voter suppression ever since 2000. You know, and only only a couple of people like John Lewis, who wrote an entire book on what happened in Ohio, um, in, to- really in 2004, seriously made you know this an issue. See, because, it, it, as I was telling you the other day, the real problem having here is that just what you said. Okay, the polls say that Biden's ahead significantly nationally, but they also say significantly in the battleground states that he's ahead. And even some okay? of the st- even some states that aren't, to, aren't typically battleground states, Biden is, 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 is ahead. That's correct. So what's happening is that those results are reported, not so much on Fox News, but other news outlets, but then almost immediately they start a discussion of how, well, but the polls were wrong in 2016. Now, let's just get straight. The polls weren't wrong in 2016. The exit polls in the battleground states showed that Clinton won. And we know in, in particularly three battleground states there were huge shenanigans that occurred that For example, were allowed to you know, happen, including not counting 80,000 votes from Detroit in the state that um, – Trump won by 10,000 votes. How are 80,000 um, votes not counted in Detroit? Well, because they, a huge number of the scanners in black neighborhoods, which of course were the majority of the neighborhoods in Detroit, since the city has 90% African American, um, or at least 90% people of color, um, it, 90 machines were not working. The scanners, they, they do a paper ballot, they scan it in to count it, and as soon as they opened the polls that morning, 90 machines weren't working. Most of them were fixed by late in the morning. It left about seventy-five to 80,000 ballots just from Detroit that were never counted and were counted as spoiled because, because of a ruling by the Republican Secretary of State. Now, there was no question that these ballots were in, were in the possession of the election officials. They had not been counted once because they were put through the scanner and they knew that they hadn't been counted because they knew there was discrepancies between the number of ballots that they had been scanned and the number of ballots that had been counted. And they ruled that they would not recount. This was when Jill Stein paid for the recount. Um, that they would not consider those votes at all in the recount. Isn't it so ironic? Isn't it again the votes they had counted? But isn't it ironic that a Green Party presidential candidate had to be the one to request the recount, not 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 somebody with the Clinton campaign or with the National Democratic Party? Exactly. Well, what's that about? Why, why, why the would Democrats they not do... are such wimps. <laughs> you know, and well, what, 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 you what, know, what, actually, uh, Colonel Wilkerson, the guy who was um, yeah. Colin Powell's chief right, of staff, sure. yes. he's involved with, the, with a number of projects, you know, about what happens if Donald Trump doesn't want to leave office. You know, and, and he was pointing out that they've basically been wargaming, essentially, the various scenarios. You know, and the first scenario they did was that, uh, you know, Biden wins in a landslide um, so that Trump can't, you know, really dispute it. And 
what would the transition look like? And basically, the the Republicans, you know, most of whom were like with the Lincoln Project, the Republican strategists basically told the people who playing the Biden people, well, you know, we're not giving you anything. We're not giving you any of the briefing books. We're not. We're not. You know, you're going to walk in here on January twentieth, and you're starting fresh because we're not giving you a thing. And he said, and you know, Wilkinson was saying that the Democrat strategists were just completely appalled. They had no, they had no idea what to say. You know. Um, and that's that's typical Democrat. But, I mean, but they just but, don't but, play in the same sport. But couldn't it be worse than that? Couldn't it be? Couldn't couldn't? I mean, if Trump really truly loses, couldn't he declare the election fraudulent? Uh, and then, if pressed to concede to to leave office to hand the reins of government over to Joe Biden, couldn't he say? Um, I mean, couldn't he actually yeah, call? But, couldn't he actually the, declare? But the blatant nature of that would be hard for the Republicans to support, particularly if the Republicans. Subsequently, lose, you know, at the same time, lose Senate control. So you don't think no, what's, you, more, you don't what's think more likely? It, what's more likely is that they would interfere in the electoral co- college process. They would basically, um, you know, prevail upon their surrogates in places like Florida and and Wisconsin to declare that they cannot certify the election in their states. And so, if enough states can't certify the election, that would dump the decision into the House of Representatives. Now, the House of Representatives is controlled by the Democrats. However, in a decision-making process for the presidency where the Electoral College cannot certify, it's one vote per state. And since more states are controlled by Republicans in the House, Trump would stay president. That's the scenario everybody's most fearful of. So run that by people, Liam. And and I think the deadline for that, for certification, is sometime in December, correct? That's correct. It's it's in mid December that the states have to okay, certify. Okay, so, so just this is a, this is a possibility that you don't hear people discussing, but I think it's a very it's a really good really good point. So again, right. states have to certify. Uh, they're, 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 say go ahead, say it again. You, you you run with it. So basically, if if enough states, particularly the battle, you know these these battleground states, say that they cannot certify the election because they cannot, you know, ascertain whether there was fraudulent voting or whatever, you know, whatever they come up with, then no one would get enough electoral votes to be declared president. And, and if it's a close electoral college result, it would only take one or two states not to certify, and nobody, nobody wins. And then it gets kicked to the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives would decide who the president is, but it's based on one state, one vote. And since more, there's more states represented by Republican, right. uh, yeah. you know, uh, groups. That, that's a crazy little nuance, isn't it? Yeah. Right. And, it's, and, and, and that I, one it, had been talked about early on. I mean, people yeah. have been talking about that for over a year, year and a half. So that's why I think the scenario of Trump just refusing to leave is, the le- is not a likely one, because he would, you know, especially if, if he was just trounced, there would just be no legitimacy. And if he doesn't have the Senate to protect him, then he's cooked, you know. But it is more likely they would go with the route of trying to get, like, a place like Florida or Ohio, um, you know, not to certify. And that would create a situation that no one can get enough votes to win in in electoral college. So especially after the show of force that Donald Trump uh, put on uh, at Lafayette Park where he had um, had – security forces come in and clear the park of peaceful protesters with mace, with bullets, with clubs. He had them clear the park, and then he wa- he marched over to uh, the church, a church that didn't want him there, had a photo taken. Uh, and then shortly after that, and he let's sent... let's not forget, he was holding, he was holding, holding the, Bible the Bible upside right. down, right. Yeah. which the QAnon people have taken as some sort of message. <laughs> right, right, of sure course what. they have. But after that, <laughs> he sent stormtroopers to Portland, Oregon, to, Was- to uh, Seattle, Washington, uh, there have been right. threats of using uh, this type of federal military force in other cities. And I think it's it's caused a lot of people to think, yeah, we are that close to having a police state. We are that close to seeing this country uh, devolve into some kind of third world dictatorship. And a lot of people have been thinking, well, if Trump loses the election, this is his opportunity. That will be his opportunity to basically somehow establish martial law, either literally or at least in practice. But you're saying that's not likely because it would still uh, upset a significant element of the Republican Party uh, that they, they wouldn't they, they, they wouldn't go with those optics, and so they're going to try to accomplish this quote Trump win uh, through 
the devious means, other devious means, and particularly kind of the last straw, the one you, you, you suggest. Right, because well, the, problem, the problem with martial law is that, first of all, the National Guards are controlled by the states, and the National Guards are not as politically conservative as the rank and file of the military is. But the big problem Trump has is that he is almost universally hated among the officer corps, particularly the senior officer corps of the, of the United States military. And he would not have their support. So um, that would be a check to some degree on, on uh, the obvious illegal use of the U.S. military within the borders of this country, which, you know, has been outlawed for, well, I guess, what, since the 1840s? Right. So, hey, let, let's go yeah. with, let, let's, before we have a little time left, let's go with your theory. Um, I mean, again, the, the the states don't certify, or at least one state doesn't certify. It goes to the House of Representatives. They vote basically along the lines that allow Donald Trump to retain power. Right. How does the public respond to that? How did not, um, the Democratic I, I Party? Would, yes, but the public generally as well. I would I I would expect that it would yield to a nineteen late nineteen sixties you know general violence in this country in the larger cities. I mean, it would, you know, it would be a much more significant majority, I would predict, who are going to vote for Joe Biden and are going to vote for Democratic candidates, you know, for other offices. Is and there, to is, have it stolen once again. Yeah. Is there a legal option? Is there, is there, would there be an opportunity to take that to the courts and try to prevail there? Uh, I would assume... But this would really be within the context of the badly written Constitution, right? You know? or, or maybe it'd be up to Jill Stein the, the, and the Green the Party, the White Founders, big, you know, big bad, <laughs> right. bad ideas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you might you might want to patent that quote: the the White Founders, big batch of bad ideas. Says Charles Goldman. I like that. Hey, I, well, I mean, we under, we all understand it's the Constitution is not a democratic document. Right. It was setting up a republic of the well-to-do. I know. Yeah, the well-to-do English, uh, you know, those who were English but soured on the English government. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, and that's that's what they were doing. Yeah. And now we're bearing, we're, we're getting the fruits of this. Let's, let's say, what was the last time a Republican president was elected with a, a plurality a majority of the popular vote? I guess it goes back to... Bush. What? Bush's father? Yeah. Yeah, but in, 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 in 1988, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, Charles, uh, this has uh, been a real uplifting conversation, as always. Uh, uh, <laughs> we got to run to a break here. I really thank you for joining us. That was good talking to you. All right. Folks, that's uh, Charles Goldman talking with us, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Kathy Burns is going to join us, and we're going to talk, uh, oh, talk about the hidden violence in a veggie diet. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-built services for high-performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks for tuning in today, folks. This is Ed Fallon, your host, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Thanks to our business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store. And they have takeout service for uh, lunch and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Uh, with 30 years of experience uh, specializing in cutting-edge, creative, environmentally friendly designs, including uh, super insulated structures made from grain bins. 
Check them out, folks. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. All right, welcome back to the program again. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Uh, Kathy Burns joining us in the studio here as we talk about uh, violence. Uh, <laughs> well, we're going to talk about um, what's involved in the production of various uh, types of food and, you know, things that people ought to think about when they decide what type of diet is best for them. Now, we're passionate omnivores, but I respect for my carnivorous friends. I do have a few friends who are pretty much carnivorous. I'm not sure that's the healthiest <laughs> diet, but I, that's your choice. Go for it. We have great friends, including one of the most frequent uh, visitors to this program, Charles Goldman, who are devout vegans. We have other friends who don't eat gluten, those who are vegetarians, those who follow the paleo diet. I have respect for all of that. But like religion, you should never try to cram your diet on anyone else's throat. <laughs> and sometimes some of the some of the folks in the vegan community get a little bit uh, a little bit evangelical. Uh, we we've seen that at a few of my uh, my presentations over the past year, uh, where someone would raise the question, "Well, how can you really give a dang about climate change if you eat meat?" Oh, I give a dang. I give many dangs. <laughs> Tell us why you give a dang and yet eat meat. Uh, well, uh, at Birds and Bees Urban Farm, we raise chickens, and we use their eggs, so we, we, we are omnivores. And uh, I respect, as we both do, people's choices of diet, because people come at it from different angles. Some people have a very uh, legitimate or, you know, concerning health reason for them to avoid certain foods. Some people like to eat a more plant-based diet and we do eat a mostly plant-based yeah. diet frankly we we very rarely eat meat but uh we eat well, a lot of I'd dairy say three or four times a week yeah and we eat a lot of dairy um but yeah. um some people uh come at it from an ethical standpoint uh thinking that it's cruel to use any product that uh, does harm to or misuses uh, another being in any way yeah, i respect that just don't pass that judgment along to me. Well, also, <laughs> also we just we just want to make sure that anything that we choose to eat, we understand where our food comes from. That's what we're about at Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Know where your food comes from. And for people who choose a diet that excludes any animal products or any use of animals in producing food, uh, they might want to just make sure they're aware that some of the foods they may be that they're eating may be actually um, prepared or produced through the use of animal products. So uh oh, I you, see where this is going. You go to buy a vegetable. You go to buy your your pepper because you're going to have a stuffed pepper with some nice rice and and other seasonings in it, and you know you're going to the store and you're buying that, and you're not you're not really understanding that that it's possible that pepper may have been grown using some products and using some means that have not been friendly to other living beings and even maybe to the earth. There's absolutely no way you can grow a lot of crops, uh, and peppers included, without doing some damage to some other life form. Uh, and maybe people don't get too bent out of shape about a, about um, late blight or, or for, uh, fusarium wilt or... Uh, you know, verticillium wilt or these other uh, blights and funguses being impacted by organic choices like copper sulfate. But maybe people would get upset if they knew that flea beetles died for the production of eggplant. That's A lot of flea beetles have died or on this farm. hornworms uh, suffered a terrible death. We have a friend who was tomatoes, okay you know? with killing the, the cabbage lopers, the, the, the worm, the, the off worms, of the cabbage, yeah. but didn't want to kill the moth that laid the egg. So that was the, the cutoff of the, of the choice there of value of another life form. Even the process of preparing the soil for planting involves some violence to other life forms. Uh, we use a spade to till the soil, and when you till by hand, you put the spade in and the soil uh, comes up with the spade and then sort of falls apart. Sometimes you have to chop it a little bit more. Uh, but some of the vegetables that folks are buying at the store are 
are grown through the use of a rototiller, which or, tra- gr- or bigger, a bigger machinery, and a plow, even, yeah. Yeah. which grinds everything in the soil, everything in the soil to smithereens, <laughs> and and that's that's the worms, that's the all the uh, microbes, and that's uh, the, the the grubs and everything. So there's there's violence induced to the earth when you're planting vegetables. But not everybody can till every inch of their garden or farm with a spade. No. I get that. Uh, right. We do because we're crazy that way. Uh, <laughs> well, also, it's a lot e- It's easier to take a spade to an 8x4 plot than to it try is. to you know, maneuver a tiller into, into it. it and is. it doesn't, you know, you, you're, by the time you get in there and run a few, you know, run a few uh, rows through, you're done. So, yeah, it's easier just to get a spade i am intrigued by people who are trying to uh trying to grow fruits and vegetables uh, vegetables in particular with no-till that that intrigues me but i'm not i'm not yet convinced it's uh workable uh because the spade essentially replicates the activity of underground creatures like earthworms like breaks up things we can't see like voles and moles and yeah and, and and critters and other elements that loosen the soil to make it uh, more uh, more receptive to the seed that wants to sprout in some loose medium not uh, not something that's real hard packed so i don't i don't quite understand whether that's viable but i'm worth i'm willing to look at it speaking of voles and moles <laughs> some of the large production vegetables that f- folks who choose a plant-based diet are consuming are uh, they're they're grown in areas that control voles and moles and rabbits through some less than friendly means. In other words, they kill them to make sure that they don't disrupt the growth cycle. So you might get your asparagus, but it's possible a rabbit died in the making of your asparagus. And it's possible that that farmer employed the services of Elmer Fudd to accomplish that <laughs> that rabbicide. Be very, very quiet. Very, very quiet. <laughs> We're hunting rabbits. So uh, anyway, it's it's just... It's more a matter of really thinking through the entire picture of how your food is produced. Also, the violence that's inflicted on the earth with a lot of the um, large industrial agriculture and the the production of food en masse uh, is is really something to consider. For instance, some of the... um, what what's what's the milk the plant-based milk that's produced that has contributed to the almond milk right the california forest yeah. fires well yeah and even that's only that's only one element i mean all almonds now take up a, a portion of the central valley i believe in california the size of delaware it's huge and it's extremely water intensive uh and it's also very harmful to bees and there's a lot of chemicals involved mm-hmm. it's just to me, it's much more environmentally friendly to go to Farmer Farmer Mary down the road. Thank uh, you. Yeah, <laughs> and to um, you know get a gallon of milk from her grass-fed uh, Holstein mm-hmm. uh, than it is to import a gallon of almond milk from the Central Valley of California, where all sorts of uh, environmental uh, injustices have been inflicted. And again, bees. Big problem. A lot of said what seventy five percent of I, of America's uh, commercial bee population heads to California. Is it seventy or seventy five? Maybe seventy five. Okay. But it heads to California for the uh, for the winter, not for vacation, not to go to Disneyland, but to pollinate almonds. And it's uh, it's taking a huge toll on the bee population. You know, it's not just mites, it's not just pesticides, all the other problems we associated with bees. It's almond production, and uh, again, a lot of that is for almond milk. But you know, this other well, forms of also, milk as well. There's also the amount of fuel that's used yeah. to transport those bees. Yeah. That, that's a lot of bees to transport to California and back. And um, think about the way that that fuel is extracted from the earth and the the injustice that goes along with yeah. that. And there's uh, coconut milk, but again, that's uh, that's as bad in my opinion. This is uh, I mean, almost all coconut milk is produced from. From trees uh, in Indonesia, India, uh, countries along the equator, and um, you know that's land that should be used for local production, mm-hmm. and uh, it's 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 not at all environmentally friendly. And again, you you're looking at a huge carbon footprint, a huge fuel output to ship that coconut milk, you know, from or the, or the coconut. I'm, I'm not even sure where the milk is made, but I'm again I'm guessing whether it's almonds, coconut, oat, uh, whatever other quote milk type you're using. There's a big industrial process involved in that. Huge. You know, for the cow, 
you know, in Ireland, I used to sit down and milk that cow by hand. Um, I used to milk that, a cow that, by hand in Western Iowa. <laughs> all right, well there we go. You don't have to go all the way to no, Ireland. You don't have to, well, that's where, I, that's, that's where my family that, was. So. I know. The, uh, but you know the the, the industrial. I mean, yeah, I'm sure you can get much fancier. I've seen actually amazing dairies in in in, in the Netherlands that where they operate the dairy with uh, kind of with robots. I was kind of skeptical, but I got to tell you, I was very Andrew Yang would not. <laughs> Andrew Yang would Andrew Yang would he love that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was very impressed, but it's the bottom line is, is there's um there's a lot of problems involved with these so-called milk milk substitutes. Maybe oat milk might might have the greatest potential for being mm. less environmentally unfriendly than almond coconut. Except right now, a lot of that is produced with the use of Roundup uh, as, yeah. a, as a control. And we all know how wonderful Roundup is for you. So check your labels, think about the whole picture, and don't just don't just trust that your veggies are non-violently and, produced. Yeah, and, and don't tell me that I can't be a climate change advocate if I'm not eating vegan. I get real tired of that. I'll never tell you that. <laughs> You'll never tell me that, and I'll never tell you that. Okay. But I will tell you that it's time to wrap up our show, and again, <laughs> thanks for tuning in today, folks. Uh, thanks to our stations around Iowa, KHOI 89.1 FM, and KICI Iowa City for rebroadcasting this program, for stations around the country that pick it up, and for the podcast, and to our production team of Kathy Burns and Sherry Herdina. This is Ed Fallon, your host, thanking you for tuning in to the Fallon Forum. <laughs>